idiots. I'm your one of your hosts, Katie Halper. I'm the second of the two hosts, Aaron Mate. How are you doing, Aaron? I'm well. I'm well. How are you? What's been happening? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, I just got back from D.C. Uh, I was there for a uh, stand-up for Assange night of music and comedy. Uh, and uh, then the next day, which was, I guess, Monday, uh, there were some protests, and I attended one of them. It was good. It was Randy Credico hosted it, uh, the stand-up night. Jaffer Khan was there, John F. O'Donnell, Lee Camp, Margaret Kunstler spoke, Medea Benjamin spoke, Marianne Williamson spoke. It was a great night, and Randy Credico, his dog Bianca died at a very ripe age. I can't remember how old, but in the teens, I think the high teens. He would bring her all over with him. It was so cute. And she died, and he was heartbroken. And he got a new dog that was a gift for him from Roger Waters. Roger Waters got Randy Sophia, who's really, really cute. In fact, I held her. There was like a a handoff. I held her while he was doing his his emceeing. Then I got up to do some stand-up, and I brought her up. And then I also held her when I spoke in front of the uh, Department of Justice protest on that Monday. Because we need some levity. And we need some canines. We just need some canines in general. We need some canines in general. We need some joy. Okay. Do you see her? Cute level off the charts. That's a certified cute dog. Yeah. It's a certifiably cute dog, right? Yeah. You know that I have no vanity because I look absolutely terrible in this photo, but she looks great. Well, wait till you see the photo. She looks great. I look very, oof, it's kind of a monstery photo of me. If you zoom in, you look fierce. You're, you're, you look fierce. You got your microphone in one hand and a dog in the other. I know. Isn't she so cute? And her tongue is sticking really out. Really cute. So that was my, uh, that's, that's what's new with me. Awesome. Awesome. Well, should we get to our four food groups? Sure. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's go with Democrat suck. Oh my God. Wow. So for Democrat suck, I just, let's just show this TikTok video of someone who's running for um, Congress in the great state of Colorado. I love when people are like, you have a moderate policy, you lost my vote. Oh, what vote was that? Was that the vote you were gonna give to some Bernie wannabe whose overkill policies are unpopular with 75% of voters just so you could feel good about yourself until they lose the general election, at which point you'll point your finger and blame someone else? That vote? Oh, honey, your vote got lost a long time ago. Democrats need to wake up. Jesus, in order to legislate, we have to win. Go to walkerforcolorado.com and stop complaining. Woo! Okay, so that is the camp, a little TikTok video for someone who's running against Lauren Boebert, who I really don't like, but I got to say, this almost makes me want to volunteer for a campaign. Yeah, I'm pro, I'm pro Boebert at this point. Yeah, I'm pro <laughs> that... Boebert. I'm a Boebertite. I'm, if yeah. that is not a parody ad, then I, yes, the, put me in the camp of, of uh, Boebert, yeah. for sure. <laughs> like, who, why do you have to alienate and shit on Bernie Sanders and his supporters? Like, what are you even achieving? Like, let's say that that's your own political ideology, which sucks. Like, why are you doing this? What vote are you getting out? It also be so obnoxious. It's so obnoxious, right? It's so, oh my god! It's so obnoxious. So if we could actually look at his uh, website, okay. So his his motto is a bull, not a bull shitter. Is that the shit emoji? Oh yeah! Wait till you see his launch video. Yeah. Okay, so for people just watching, people are like washing their, cleaning their cars, and women's walking out with the ice cream sundae, looking up at the sky. 
and dropped on her is a huge poop. Oh, then there are all these poops shit. falling from the sky. Poops hitting the ground, poops hitting fresh produce, landing on top of a stuffed animal. A little girl reaches out her arms. A father or a man comes running towards her to save her. Right before he gets there, poop lands on him, knocks him out. Now we see it. Stuffed animal covered in poop. And Walker, a candidate, picks it up. We are real Colorado. We deserve a living wage, small government that actually works, and freedom of choice. Instead, we have bullshit. Woman opens a history book, and how would you describe this? QAnon guy, guy in a t-shirt, vomits all over a picnic. <laughs> this is crazy. <laughs> Don't you ever wonder where it's all coming from? Cut to Warren Bobert's office. Someone's Viewing a hose of bullshit. Colorado needs a bull, not a bullshitter. I'm Alex Walker, and I approve the shit out of this message. This unshitty video paid for by Walker for Colorado. So, I mean, he's leaning into that. He's not afraid of shit. Okay, a few thoughts. First of all, I'm convinced that this guy is a bit. He's doing a bit. Yeah. There's no way this guy is real. But let's say if he is real, then I honestly, I feel a certain admiration for him because look how confident he is in his whole shtick. The amount of, his he's so self-assured to do a yeah. crazy video like that. Like, imagine the production that went into that video. Yeah, a lot. The writing process, the props, the budget. I mean, that was like a expensive yeah, the production. Set, the set. And he's so committed to it that he's willing to see it through. And so if this is not a bit, then I, you know, I have to show my admiration because yeah. I, there's nothing, I've never done anything in my life with that level of confidence. And commitment, right? <laughs> and commitment. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so, you know, I guess whatever it is, props to him. Yeah, I wonder what Bobert, I know, it's almost like Democrats are all, I mean, it, the oh, the TikTok video is like just definite suckage. Democrats suck, like, so hard. But the second thing, the shit video is like, Democrats are awesome. More like Democrats are weird. This is just like a Democrats are really weird. Democrats are really weird. This is the yeah. weirdest thing I've ever seen. But right? Amazing. So entertaining. Yeah. Yeah. And his TikTok video, his TikTok video, he's got, he's got so much confidence. I know. And it's so obnoxious. <laughs> it's almost admirable. It's infuriating. It's like, wow, you think this is cool or appealing? It's like, again, it turns me into a Bobert yeah. person. So, yeah. Unless it's a bit, in which case. Right. It could again, be a Bobert person. Up. Yeah. A plant. Yeah. I'm sure she'll be thrilled to be running against this yeah, guy. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah she's yeah. A, a nut job. Yeah. Right. All right. Well, hey. Yeah. Good luck, Colorado. Yeah. That's going to be a fun. I'm definitely watching that race, though. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be a real shit show. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about 
how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything wherever you listen. All right. So for Republicans suck, we have an article uh, featuring a number of Republican voices by our friend Matt Taibbi. Friend of show. Friend of the show. Founder, Host co-founder of, show. of the show. Yeah, co-founder um, of the show, yeah. Matt goes through a series of warmongering claims from Republicans like this guy, Robert Kagan, top neoconservative, the husband of Victoria Nuland, who is a current top State Department official under Biden, basically running his Ukraine policy after running Ukraine policy for Obama, where she oversaw a coup in 2014 and right. kicked off this whole mess, basically. Victoria, so Robert, fuck the EU, Newland. Exactly. Victoria, fuck the EU, Newland. So Robert Kagan, her husband, is uh, he's on the scene and he has written some interesting thoughts about Ukraine and Russia. So as Matt points out, Robert Kagan wrote a piece called The Price of Hegemony in Foreign Affairs. And uh, as Matt says, if I'd written this opening, people would denounce me as a Putin concubine. And Kagan says this, quote, although it is obscene to blame the U.S. for Putin's inhumane attack on Ukraine, to insist that the invasion was entirely unprovoked is misleading. Just as Pearl Harbor was the consequence of U.S. efforts to blunt Japanese expansion on the Asian mainland, and just as the 9-11 attacks were partly a response to the U.S. dominant presence in the Middle East after the first Gulf War, so Russian decisions have been a response to the expanding post-Cold War hegemony of the U.S. and its allies in Europe. Wow. That's some refreshing right. honesty from it Robert some Kagan. refreshing honesty. But the thing is, Kagan doesn't approach that, that picture, that background, the same way we do. Right. As Matt writes, Kagan went on to make an argument straight out of Dr. Strangelove. Instead of doing what some critics want and focusing on improving the well-being of Americans, the U.S. government is instead... Properly, properly recognizing the responsibility that comes with being a superpower. So while Russia's invasion may indeed have been a foreseeable consequence of a decision to expand our hegemonic reach, now that we're here, there's only one option left, total commitment. And then Matt goes on to quote Kagan, it is better for the U.S. to risk confrontation with belligerent powers when they are in the early stages of ambition and expansion, not after they have already consolidated substantial gains. Russia may possess a fearful nuclear arsenal, but the risk of Moscow using it is not higher now than it would have been in 2008 or 2014 if the West had intervened then. And it has always been extraordinarily small. So very, it's funny, shared analysis mm -hmm. in some ways with us, right? Very different takeaway. Yeah. He's saying, let's do it. Let's go all in. Yeah. Go we provoked, in. we helped provoke the war. Now let's take it to the next level. And yeah. Forget about the risk of a nuclear holocaust. Yeah. Well, good thing to know that Republicans are not alone in this view right. and that, you know, this leading neoconservative light has an ally in his wife who right. is working under Biden right now. Right. Which shows you that um, Republicans suck and Democrats suck by working right. with these people. That's right. That's but maybe right. that's the bipartisan moderate behavior that uh, Alex Walker likes. Colorado candidate. Yeah, there we go. There, there we go. go. Yeah. Yes. Yes. All right. What do we got for Isn't That Weird? So for Isn't That Weird, we have an interesting business venture. Uh, this is this is creative. This is thinking outside the box. 
Elf Cosmetics and Duncan launch a makeup collection. Makeup that smells like your favorite Dunkin' Coffee and Donut combo? Really, it's a thing. TikTok fave beauty brand Elf Cosmetics is launching a limited edition makeup collection inspired by Dunkin's Coffees and Donuts. Even the packaging for the makeup looks like you're taking home a box of donuts, not lip glosses and eyeshadows. The Elf Duncan collaboration features items with names that riff off Duncan's menu. Duncan Do Dozen scented eyeshadow palette with its colors of shimmery pink, blue, yellow, and chocolate brown. Two glazed for days lip glosses, a coffee scented lip scrub, makeup brushes shaped like straws. There's even a makeup sponge that resembles a strawberry frosted donut with confetti sprinkles and an Elf Duncan branded coffee cup. The unconventional pairing of makeup with a popular food brand has already been proven to be a successful strategy for Elf. Last March, ELF Cosmetics joined forces with Chipotle for a limited edition online-only sale of makeup inspired by ingredients on its menu. The collection sold out in 72 hours. Some items were snapped up in minutes. Uh, the avocado makeup sponge was sold out in two minutes. I mean, honestly, the, the Dunkin' seems like so inside the box, like almost like a no-brainer compared to Chipotle. Like, that is not appealing to me. Makeup that looks like Mexican food. I love Mexican food. But you don't want, I don't associate, I associate, I want to associate my makeup with sweet things, not savory mm. things. Now, of course, there's sweet Mexican desserts. And really, we'll have to look into this and go back to the archive for next time to see what kind of products they were. But And we can even watch a video. We got a short video. We can watch the, the products get, get reviewed. Shout out to this woman. Her name is Michaela. She does makeup reviews. She's huge on TikTok. And she has an amazing Boston accent. Camera speeds. Just feed me go. <laughs> What's poppin'? I am gonna show you a tutorial using the brand new Elf Runs on Duncan collection. First, let's prep the skin. All right, daily do stick. These are the ones I cannot do three takes. <laughs> and then I'm gonna take the Elf Power Grip Primer. I'm gonna go in with the Primer. Elf Runs on Duncan. Don't forget. Putty Primer. It smells so good. <laughs> For the base makeup, we're gonna use the Elf Camo CC Cream and the Elf Camo Concealer. Put some on the donut sponge and apply okay. it to the face. It's really That's soft. Now we're gonna bronze up the face and we're gonna go in with the Camo Concealer one more time. It's the Camo Powder Foundation. So I'm just gonna take a fluffy brush and we're just gonna set the whole face. This is the Elf Putty Blush. We're gonna add a bit of a pop of color. Okay, we're pulling out the eyeshadow palettes and I'm just gonna tap this that right onto my Duncan. cheeks. Doesn't Let's move palette. on to the lips. This is the Elf Runs on Duncan Original Blend Coffee Lip Scrub. It literally smells like a fresh brewed coffee. Oh my God, it tastes so good. So now we're gonna apply some lip liner. These are so cute. These are the lip glosses. It's scented like a donut. <laughs> they literally look like a straw. Here's the palette up close. We're gonna get a transition shade into a crease. I also flared it out to the edge of the brow. We're gonna take this lighter shade here and we're gonna start to diffuse out that color. I'm actually gonna dip into this beautiful shimmer right here and I'm just gonna press to give that shimmer. I'm gonna take this e.l.f. Big Mood Mascara. So I'm gonna apply this. I'm gonna add some liner, finish off the rest of the look. All right, wow. there, there you have it. Okay, yeah. Yeah. I want to send a message to any viewers out there who are hardcore capitalists because I have something to acknowledge to you. Now, you know, you might be able to tell that Katie and I sort of lean socialists in our political views. Yeah. 
that's something I really think about too much. But yeah, I mean, you know, push comes to shove. If I could design the world, I wouldn't design the world in the way we currently have it under this current capitalist system the way it is. But I will admit something to you. I cannot guarantee you that if we make the transition to full socialism, that Dunkin' Donuts and makeup collaborations will carry over. I cannot guarantee that. I don't know if our future world will allow for that kind of innovation that this current capitalist capitalist system has where a fast food giant can collaborate with, with a makeup brand. I'm not sure if socialism can handle that kind of innovation. I don't know. Maybe it will only allow those types of collaborations to flourish even more. I mean, they'll be collectivized. You think so? I think it could happen. Maybe more (laughs) mom and pop-ish, maybe more farm to table. That's what I'm saying. But that's, but that's not Dunkin' Donuts. That's what I'm saying. Right. Well, so there you're maybe done. Yeah. Well, that's, we're going to have to think about this. We're going to get back to you for on the next, for the next episode. We're going to, I just want to be transparent. That's all. I just want to be transparent. That the world so that our, we fight for may not include, may yeah. not allow for these types of collaborations. Yeah. That's true. So if you were to lay down your life for socialism one day, everybody, just know that we might not be able to get Dunkin' Donuts and makeup collaborations. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. All things to think about. Yeah. You know, I, I like this, Katie. I feel like we've saluted some innovation today. We really have. Shit, so shit, salute shit. to the innovators. Yeah, salute to the innovators. Yeah. So that that's my, isn't that inspiring? Isn't that weird, but also kind of inspiring? And isn't that innovative? Isn't that innovative? Yeah. All right. So for Isn't That Terrible, we have some terrible media news, everyone. This is just crushing. And for the useful idiot audience, this is going to be a, sh- a shocker. So I hope, hope everyone is, is, is uh, strapped into their seats. You should not be standing up for this. You should be sitting down. CNN Plus, Katie, as you know, is a new streaming service launched by CNN. And what the concept is, all the hosts and anchors you see on CNN that nobody is watching for free on cable news or, you know, as part of your cable news package. Now what you can do is pay per month to see them on CNN plus. That's the concept. So shockingly big cuts are coming for CNN plus after a slow start. That's the headline from Axios because as CNBC reports, CNN plus struggles to lure viewers in its early days, drawing fewer than 10,000 daily users, less than 10,000. And that's less than watch a useful idiots video yeah. in like one day, you know? Uh, and so let's, let's uh, read this fewer than 10,000 people are using CNN plus on a daily basis, two weeks into its existence. Sources said the paltry audience cast doubt on the future of the application following the recently completed combination of discovery and Warner media into Warner brothers discovery. <laughs> and do you know how much they spent, Katie, on launching this thing? They spent something like $300 million. $300 oh million. God. They got Chris Wallace over from Fox News. He left his Fox News Sunday show right. to host a new show on CNN Plus called Who Is Talking to Chris Wallace. And now That's they're not name. even pulling 10,000 daily users. I mean, can they invest some of that? Since it's not going anywhere, why don't they invest it in us? Listen. The whole point is w- w- the whole point is that we they don't do like we don't we don't do what what CNN is looking for. Uh, oh, okay. We, well, neither does CNN Plus apparently, which is successful programming. Yeah, but I think they'd rather go in the tank than actually be honest journalists. I think that's what it comes down to. Uh, and that's what's funny. But what's funny is they don't. It hasn't clued in that people are abandoning them in droves precisely because. Everyone recognizes outlets like CNN as being frauds, as repeatedly pushing state lies for so many years and uh, never taking any responsibility for it. So you do that enough, you lose enough people's trust. People are not going to come back. And yet 
CNN is operated as if that, that isn't happening in this complete fantasy world. I mean, I don't know which is more terrible that they launched it or that I think I actually think that it's it's failure is is refreshing that the, the terrible may be that CNN was even launched the plus in the first place. The failure is something to celebrate. Right. The terribleness comes from just how terrible their launch is gone. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Right. But we celebrate it. Absolutely. Right. Isn't that isn't that terrible? Isn't that terribleness uh, cause for celebrate? We're doing a lot of saluting. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. So thank you, CNN Plus. So thank for, you, CNN Plus. Yeah. Thank for, you, for, thank you, America, for not for not tuning in. Absolutely. So that's our. Isn't that terrible? That's our. Isn't that terrible? We have a great guest today, uh, Sharice Burden-Stelly, who is assistant professor of Africana Studies and Political Science at Carleton College. She's the co-author with Dr. Gerald Horn, big friend of the show, of W.E.B. Du Bois: A Life in American History, and she's also working on a book tentatively titled Black Scare, Red Scare, Anti-Blackness, Anti-Communism, and the Rise of Capitalism in the United States. And she's the host of the Last Dope Intellectual Podcast. You can also follow her on Twitter at BlackLeftAF. Let us talk to Dr. Cherise Burdenselli. Thank you so much for joining. We're so excited to talk to you. Just heard a great chat that you had with friend of the show, uh, Margaret Kimberly, where you were talking about uh, Joe Biden's budget. Can you share with us and our audience your thoughts on that and what it represents and means? Yeah, absolutely. So I just think that first and foremost, so Biden's proposed budget is a militarism budget and a policing budget. I think that that's first and foremost, and that needs to be understood in the context of a possible World War III, um, the normalization of neo-Nazism and fascism um, that is a, pro- a, a product of not only the current conflict in Ukraine, but also you know, the US-backed coup in 2014 in Ukraine, uh, which was a, a right-wing coup. But the context also includes um, impending economic recession, and food shortages, which may or may not be felt here in the US, but that will certainly be uh, felt around the world, as well as increased worker militancy, the ongoing eviction crisis, and the increased criminalization of poverty. And so all of this is important context because it answers the question partially as to why it is that Biden is doubling down on the increased funding of the police. So it's important to note that this never stopped. It was never cut. It never stopped. It never abated, right? In fact, uh, Biden ensured that a portion of the America Rescue Plan that was passed in 2020 had made available what he said, quote, unprecedented resources for states and cities to invest in hiring officers for quote unquote accountable policing as well as crime um, prevention and intervention. So this was already um, something that he had been extremely supportive of. And of course, with this budget, he wants to um, you know, set aside more than 32 billion in spending to fight crime 
in the United States, which includes 20.6 billion um, at the Justice Department and another 3.2 billion for state and local law enforcement to uh, use grants for hiring police officers. And what else is important about that 20.6 billion is that this is discretionary funding um, for federal law enforcement, which means it can be used for whatever they want, right? It's not earmarked for anything in particular. And then the funding also for the for state and local law enforcement for these so-called crime prevention programs represents an increase of, of 11% over uh, fiscal year 2022. And so all of that to say is that in my perspective, Biden is turning to policing and militarism to sort of fortify the state and private property against the people who are going to continue to protest, strike, and rise up as ordinary people bear the brunt of inflation, um, rising fuel costs, rising food costs, and again, an eviction crisis that has not been resolved. It has only been sort of um, delayed. Right. Right. And so and, and I guess the final thing that I'll say is I think that the, the, the union question and the strike question is really important because historically police are used as strike breakers. Right. To to brutalize strikers. And we just saw the recent victory of the Amazon labor union. And as more and more places like Starbucks and um, Amazon move to unionize, the police are meant to provide a. Um, fortification against that worker militancy. So um, it affects racialized people, workers, um, and and poor people. And it's bad. <laughs> and what do you make of Biden choosing to blame all this on Putin? First, they tried out the line, Putin's price hike. The reason why you're paying more for everything is because of Vladimir Putin. And then when that didn't work, now Biden is just straight up accusing Putin of genocide. We have a clip of Biden saying this. I'm doing everything within my power by executive orders to bring down the price and address the Putin price hike. In fact, we've already made progress since March inflation data was collected. Your family budget, your ability to fill up your tank, none of it should hinge on whether a dictator declares war and commits genocide in a half a world away. So it's a genocide now, and that's why everyone's supposed to just sit there and accept paying more for everything, as Biden, by the way, is putting together hundreds of millions of dollars more in weapons assistance to to Ukraine. Well, it's interesting, right? So this is just the, the latest sort of scapegoat, because prior to that, people were blaming inflation on stimulus, right? That yeah. Biden had punched too much, pumped too much money into the economy, which means he did too much to help poor people. By the way, that was like, what, a $2,000 check and then a $600 check? No, not even um, if that. Right. And so so that was another sort of means of trying to invade um, the realities of inflation, which have more to do probably with bailouts of Wall Street, which were also written into that um, America, you know, American Protection Act, then the paltry sums that were given to workers on the one hand and then Putin on the other hand. Right. And really, if you want to if it's if you want to blame anything, it's sanctions. These sanctions that are being passed on Russia because of this conflict in Ukraine are actually doing more um, in terms of inflation than is, you know, the war, like the so, the so-called war writ large, right? And so, and so, so the conditions for inflation really, I think date more back to the pandemic and bottlenecks and supply chain issues than to quote unquote Putin's war. This is just mainstream media propaganda to try to um, garner support for the war on the one hand, and then to absolve Biden of his abysmal record in every way, right? His, his abdication of every campaign promise on the other hand. So politics as usual. Right. 
And price gouging also, right? That's the other thing that's behind inflation. People like to pretend it's just this natural, unavoidable thing that happens. But Nixon, you don't have to be a radical. I mean, Nixon himself imposed uh, a price freeze. So Yeah, but also a concomitant wage freeze. So we shouldn't like celebrate that Nixon thing because it was like a a price freeze and um, a wage freeze that he implemented in in 1973 in response to the OPEC oil crisis. So I do think you're right. Like we we talk about the quote unquote law of supply and demand. This is not a law. Right. That's that's a social reality of capitalism. That is not a law. Right. Because one could easily once um, resources become sparse, one can easily sort of um, have government subsidies. Right. To eat to ease those uh, those bottlenecks and those burdens and make uh, prices cheaper. And so, I mean, it's all manufactured. And we could, of course, try price wages without wage uh, price price uh, freezes without wage freezes. But like you're saying, it's all there's there's the potential for government action it's not this immutable law of nature exactly yeah uh you mentioned the amazon victory let me ask you to talk more about that what did you make of it and and what have you seen in the in the sort of media cultural response so far how how the establishment u.s media is dealing with this completely like organic grassroots effort basically just christian smalls and his his uh, close crew of allies putting together something really historic. Yeah, no, I think that that is what's really important about it is that it was a grassroots sort of bottom up movement, you know, because we know that unions, unions are good, but oftentimes union leadership can compromise with, with bosses, right? And to the detriment of ordinary workers. And so this was like rank and file, ordinary, regular workers, um, organizing for a union. And, you know, in terms of the response, I've seen all sorts of goofy responses to it. One being, and from so-called leftists, like one being that there was too much centering of Christian Smalls. <laughs> but of course, that was only happening in the mainstream media. Most people are acknowledging the collective historic nature of the Amazon labor union. But, you know, the, you know, the mainstream media loves a hero. They love to uh, individualize these efforts to discourage um, collective uh, organizing and, and collective struggle. But also, you know, it's, you know, one can't help but think about the sort of racism of it all that the problem becomes like centering this black this poor right working class black male like how dare people focus on you know that type of person leading this type of struggle so i don't know um and then in the mainstream media there's been some coverage but it's also been like largely ignored um but then we see like the democratic party suits, including everybody's fave AOC, trying to glom onto that victory as if they had anything whatsoever to do with this other than sort of jumping on in the in the 11th hour and or, you know, disparaging or ignoring that effort altogether. Yeah. And I wouldn't have minded if they had just said, you know, sorry, we relate to this. Right. But I didn't see that kind of acknowledgement that it's okay if you can't be there for everything, but it's it just makes all the more special that it really it, as you it just came from a small group of people and yeah i mean if christian smalls has made the face of it great i mean this is what amazon wanted when they disparaged him and said they this was their strategy so he should be the face of it because he stood up to them and and, and pulled this off it's just it's like he should be celebrated as a hero 
And even when he does his interviews, he's not like, look what I did, me, me, me. He's extremely, um, extremely careful, I would say, to acknowledge that this was a collective effort, that this was something that a lot of people contributed to, right? That he was, I I think it's correct to say that he was the catalyst. Well, the catalyst was super exploitation, but in terms of an individual, he was the catalyst, but that was part of a collective. So, you know, I just think it's, when we get bound up in this um, identity reductionism, um, we can be worried about like the wrong things. Right. And I also think we have to meet, I mean, we don't have time to like reinvent the wheel. People respond to stories of individuals. It's our job to show that both, that it was a movement. Also though, people do respond to stories and it's a moving story. And I think it makes it accessible for people who don't necessarily aren't already kind of oriented to care about movement stories. So we have to do both of those things. But sometimes like the chastising of like, oh, it's why are you focusing on an individual? It's a little annoying. Um, not that you were doing that. I'm saying other people do it. Also wanted to know your thoughts on uh, Katenji Brown Jackson's uh, confirmation. I saw you retweeted queer socialism who tweeted just an unbearable amount of narcissism from all those these colonial ruling class ordained black managerial figures. Fascinating which was a response to her saying, um, I am the dream and the hope of the slave. How did she know? Is she a time traveler? Was she going back to, you know, hundreds of years to ask these enslaved Africans what it is that they dreamed about and what it is that they wanted? You know, so first of all, that's just stupid. And secondly, like, I, the, it's interesting, right? Because the Supreme Court is, it is appointed for life right? So it's a lifetime appointment. It's undemocratic. So the, just because they go through a Senate hearing doesn't mean that it's a democratic process, right? So when those type of entities exist in the global South, we call that authoritarianism, right? We call that a breach of democracy. So the Supreme Court is an authoritarian or authoritarian totalitarian structure anyway. I don't see that. I mean, I think it's fine, right? And I... I don't subscribe to the fact that since now that she has done it, Black people can see that anything is possible. No, it's not, because that's not the way that class operates. That's not the way that representation, you know, liberal representation operates. She was endorsed by the Fraternal Order of Police, which I think is very telling. You know, a lot has been made of her being a public defender, but I, you know, again, she was also, um, she has never sort of come out in support of movements, right? She just says that she's she's beholden to the law. I don't celebrate Black women being the caretakers of empire. It's not something I find to be impressive or laudatory. So that's what I have to say about that. One thing I thought was impressive was when it came out during her confirmation hearings when the senator from Texas was really upset with her because when she defended a Guantanamo prisoner, she said that George Bush and Donald Rumsfeld could be tried for war crimes. I thought that was admirable. Sure. Um, it's, it's, I I think it's really easy to say things when, um, like in, in retrospect, right? Because she didn't say that Biden could be tried for warm crimes or Obama or Kamala Harris, right? Cause there are stakes to saying that now. So, you know, um, George Bush is a, a easy target now. Um, just like Obama's an easy target now, but like, where was your antennas in the moment? So, okay. Right. Eh, fair enough. Can you tell us about the uh, book that you're working on with Jody Dean? 
Yeah. So we have, um, it is a collective volume of Black communist women's writing between um, roughly 1919 and 1956. It's called Organized Fight When. And, you know, that collection came out of just a conversation between Jody and I. She was asking me if I had a particular piece that Louise Thompson Patterson had written. Um, I happened to be in the CPUSA papers um, at that time, at the time I meant library. And then we were like, you know, because and there had been things that I would ask her for. She had this or that copy of a particular primary source. And so we thought that it would be useful and a really um, important contribution to um, both, um, you know, academia and to, um, you know, organize the organizing space for this, the first of its kind collection of black uh, communist women's political writings. And so it includes um, some speeches, uh, manifestos, excerpts from memoirs, uh, journal articles, and all sorts of different types of, of writing from people like Louise Thompson Patterson, Juliana Burroughs, um, Lorraine Hansberry, Claudia Jones, Esther Cooper Jackson, and a bunch of other people. And how big was that scene back when it was happening then? The black communist scene? Well, I mean, it it, it fluctuates, right? So so most historians agree that the height was in the sort of night in the Great Depression era. So the 1930s. Um, there was one mass exodus in 1939 after the Molotov Ribbentrop Pact. And so uh, which was so the so-called Stalin Hitler Pact, there was one sort of exodus of of communists of all types. Another aspect of that was after 1935 and like the popular front era, um, the communist party turned away from um, the black belt nation thesis and the idea of black self-determination. So that's when people like uh, Queen Mother Moore, oddly Moore, like left the communist party because part of the reason why a lot of black folks joined was because of the Scottsboro work, um, their critique of the invasion of Ethiopia and other works that they were doing um, around the, the Negro question. And so I think that the communist party and black communists um, punched above their weight class. So there was never like a huge number, but they had an outsized impact in terms of the types of organizing and the, ty um, the types of organizing that they did and the types of international connections and, and campaigns that they launched. So I didn't, I didn't know that. So the communist party in the US, there was a time when they turned against basically black nationalism and self-determination. Yes. Yeah. Why, well, like, they, well, it was the, it, it's like the the popular front era or the yeah. United Front era where it was sort of. So my favorite period is a third period. A lot of historians treat this as the antagonistic period, but this is like the class against class. But this is when they passed the back the Black Belt Nation thesis when there was a really trenchant critique of imperialism and the ruling class. By 1935, under um, Earl Browder, there was a the united front against fascism and so here is when people like george padmore left the party because they thought the party had turned away from its um critique of of imperialism as well as its commitment to the negro question and that it was making capitulations or concessions to um capital and to the west and so um by 1943, there was another shift um, with the ouster of Earl Browder, blah, blah, blah. This is very boring communist history, but but yeah, but there was a moment when it was per perceived that um, the work that the grassroots and the sort of work that had been done around the Negro question was, if not abandoned, then sidelined. Hmm. Um, I saw you during, uh, there was a really interesting interview that you did with uh, Brianna Joy Gray, where you talked about critical race theory and the ways in which the left kind of can become defensive in a way where we let the right define 
the terms mm-hmm. and the arguments. And then so people are kind of jumping to defend critical race theory without even understanding it or without determining whether or not it is a, a, a leftist framework, because a lot of people just don't even know what that's about. So what are your thoughts um, on critical race theory and how much does it does this discussion actually matter? Yeah, so I think critical race theory is like a very particular intervention that is like rooted in that is a response to like critical legal studies, which was a a Marxist critique of U.S. law and jurisprudence. So critical race theory, people like um, Derek Bell, Richard Delgado, Kimberly Crenshaw at all kind of put forth critical race theory as a way of critiquing the ubiquity of, of racism in the U.S. law and in U.S. jurisprudence. I want to say it comes about in the 19, maybe mid 1970s and is, is kind of popularized through to the 1980s. And there's texts like We Are Not Saved and Faces at the Bottom of the Well by um, Derek Bell, Alchemy of Race and Rights by, Alchemy of Race and Rights by uh, Patricia Williams and other texts like this, right? Um, And then you have the text by Kimberly Crenshaw. And so it's, you know, um, it's a a, a critical lens for understanding um, the US law. And I think it's an important intervention. I mean, I'm a black studies scholar, I'm trained in black studies, and which means that critical uh, race theory is just one aspect of how we study the black experience, how we interrogate racism and, imperialism, colonialism, et cetera. And so it's not something that I necessarily, it's fine, right? But I think that there are other frameworks. And I, you know, and the problem becomes that every, any and everything becomes understood as critical race theory because people don't understand, Americans are dumb. So, you know, we don't understand anything. So everything becomes critical race theory. But then with with that sort of wide dragnet does is that, it makes it so any study of race or any study, uh, any sort of challenge to U.S. mythology becomes anathema. And then this is where we see all of the the state level and and city level um, laws and ordinances against teaching so-called critical race theory, which is actually just against teaching critical thinking. And so I think that becomes the issue, right? The attack on teaching any sort of critical thinking um, about race, but also about gender and sexuality should become the focus and not defending, randomly defending critical race theory or not, but rather what are the technologies and techniques and forms of propaganda that are being used to attack teaching people a history that is not elite history, right? That is not rooted in white supremacy. Have you in your own uh, education history come up with, like come up against ways of teaching that were just to you totally abhorrent that you had to have to basically have you have you had that experience no we had to like we had to like resist we had to like resist your educators i mean i think that all all u.s education is so so i believe you know carter g woodson talks about miseducation of the negro i think that all all u.s education other than uh, all the content is problematic, but the skills aspect of it is useful, right? So how do you learn, like learning to read and write, but what you learn to read and what you learn to write about and what constitutes civics, for example, or social studies, that is what becomes the problem. And so I think that all critical study um, has an aspect of undoing and has an aspect of unlearning. And so, you know, I'm trained all the way up through PhD level. And so, but a lot of the things that I needed to know, I'm autodidactic about, right? 
especially like political economy, for example. And so I think having other aspect, other types of education beyond the K through 12 education is really important. And even, even in undergraduate, you know, um, I think that being a black studies, I was a double major in political science and, and African African American studies and having the latter really sort of gave me an alternative to the neoliberal political, political landscape that was prevalent in my political science major. So, I mean, I think that we all have to do that extra work um, if we want to learn something outside of like U.S. mythology that parades as history. Well, what do you think of the term political science? Because that's where I had my biggest problem in school when I was studying political science. And it was like the term science, it was, it was like I was being taught that there's a fixed set of rules to politics and all of them happen to basically justify the hegemonic US led order. And I really objected to referring to this as a science. You can call it studies if you want, but referring to it as a science imbued it with a sort of like a certain um, authority and just like fixed order that I did not think obviously was justified, merited. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is a scientific way that you can study politics, right? Like just if we, you know, for example, like when people talk about Marxism as or dialectical materialism as a science of history, I do think there's a scientific way you can study politics, um, but that's different than conflating science with understanding the status quo or science with sort of the hegemony of liberal politics. And so in political, so political science also goes by like politics or government. Um, I'm a political theorist. And so I don't even, so that's kind of the redheaded stepchild of the rented mule of political science, because it's not sort of beholden to like the econ, like not even economism, the quant the hegemony of like the quantifiable or the the quantitative method that now is hegemonic in academia so i mean i don't know political science is always backward <laughs> and what do you think of the 1619 project speaking of you know crt and controversies i don't know i think just read gerald horn i mean whatever i don't have a dog in that fight per se i mean i think <laughs> somebody tweeted that Nicole Hannah Jones was like one of the most important historians of our time, hands down. And I thought that was farcical. She's not a historian. She's a journalist. Um, and so I, I, I don't know. I, I think that again, I, I, I understand the defense of it because when you see like all of these old crusty white male historians getting mad about it, then it's like, mm, that right. gives you pause. Right. right. You want to on the other hand. Defense. Yeah. On the other hand, I think that it's, it's like a, an, a, it's just a black American origin story. It's another, there's a way that they can redound to like another type of mythology that just simply starts with enslavement because 1619 is arbitrary. One can have 1588 or 1548 or, or because, you know, those, the um, enslaved who came on, you know, came to Jamestown were not the first black folks who were here, like that failed Florida colony is important in terms of understanding black and indigenous struggles. So I don't know. So I don't have a dog in the fight, but I do think folks should read, you know, the trill trilogy by Gerald Horn, which is a better um, project in my perspective on, on that sort of theme. Can you talk about the Black Alliance for Peace? 
Sure. Yeah. So the Black Alliance for Peace is like my favorite thing. So I am um, on the coordinating committee and I am the co-coordinator of the uh, research and political education team. And so Black Alliance for Peace or BAP is basically a formation that came about to recapture and redevelop um, the, you know, the long history of anti-war, anti-imperialist and pro-peace struggle and organizing. Um, it is an alliance of organizations, but also has individual members. Um, and essentially, we work to oppose both militarized domestic state repression um, and the policies of destabilization, subversion, and um, the permanent war agenda of the U.S. state globally. We just turned five on April 4th. Um, and April Happy 4th birthday. is... Thank you. It's a significant date because it was um, the founding of NATO, um, as well as the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So it's a really so it's a, a important sort of symbolic date in that regard. And so we put um, we put out a lot of statements. We do sort of um, protests and, and organizing campaigns. And in the past year alone, we focused on Ukraine, Colombia, Haiti, Nicaragua, Cuba, Venezuela, as well as that stupid America Competes Act. You know, and so and then we also have our ongoing work on shutting down AFRICOM or the Africa Command and the, the 1033 program, which is basically the domestic arm of U.S. militarism that militarizes um, the police at the local and state level. Well, I learned from Zelensky's address to Congress recently that Dr. King would have supported arming Ukraine. That's what Zelensky is. Remember when Zelensky invoked Dr. King? He said, I have a dream mm -hmm. of that. Um, that was crazy. Yeah, a real goofball Jamal, that one. Like, I just don't, you know, Zelensky is, <laughs> he's what's wrong with celebrities becoming politicians. Um, he is what's wrong with um, people who blindly kowtow to the West or to the United States or to NATO. And he also, he's, he's reminds me of Barack Obama in particular ways because folks are like, well, how can he be supporting Nazis? He's Jewish. Okay. Well, how did, you know, Barack Obama repress the, you know, uprisings in Ferguson and he's black, you know, <laughs> Yeah. The Klan and the, and the police expanded dramatically under, you know, Obama, excuse me, not the Klan, but the, you know, the rise of, of right wing forces arose under Obama. So, you know, I think liberals and conservatives alike, because of the sort of vacuuming out of King's legacy, they invoke him for all sorts of dumb stuff. So, you know, even Katanji Brown Jackson invoked King for her, you know, historic placement on the Supreme Court. It's like, what it, King don't know you? King, like what? Why? There's help. It's like not even Thurgood Marshall, who actually was on the Supreme Court. Like this is the person that not the, you know, hundreds of, of black women attorneys and judges like what the king. So it's just he just becomes this vacuous placeholder um, for people who don't know anything about history and don't know anything about his politics for real, especially um, the years leading up to his assassination. And what are your thoughts on Ukraine? Well, and to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. That was great. What a great interview. A lot of different topics. So many topics. I'm going to check out some of those books. Yeah, definitely. We got our work uh, cut out for us. Fun. Great personality, too. Absolutely. For an I mean, the academics can be so boring. Absolutely. But not Absolutely. her. So usefulidiots.substack.com. That's where you yes. go to get bonus content. 
bonus content, you're definitely going to want to do that. We have so many great behind the the scenes, behind the paywall segments that you're definitely going to want to access. Subscribe to youtube.com slash useful idiots. Rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcast so that we defeat Podsave. Um, All right, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. See you next week. Hello, thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag usefulidiotspod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.